valley, you got to go there by yourself. Nobody else can go for you. You got to go there by yourself. Oh, you Howdy, everybody, and welcome to Cinemus, the podcast where we debate the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm your deputized host, Mike Emmel, and I'm very happy to welcome back my co-host for this episode. You know him as one of the three hosts of the magnificent Casual Cinecast, as well as our episodes on The Shining and The Red Shoes. He's the man who picks bullets out of his leg for breakfast. It's Mike. Mike, how you doing? Pretty good, sir. Thank you for acknowledging my toughness uh, there. I think that's a good place to lead off and get a good overall impression of who I am. Um, thanks for having me back, Mike. Anytime. It's always great to have one of the Casual Cinecast crew on the show. Um, No less for doing me a favor for talking about one of my favorite genres. But before we dive into that, Casual Cinecast, man, let's plug it. Um, What do you guys do on that show for people who somehow are not familiar with you yet? Uh, Yes, thank you. So on the Casual Cinecast, usually every other week, we like to review a film from the Criterion Collection. And usually those films are chosen by us and then voted on by the listeners. So we kind of try to uh, incorporate what the people want to hear, you know? And then when we're not doing Criterion films, we review whatever movies are coming out, like, currently, right? The current movies. And so we like to try to sort of go back and forth between new and old. So uh, I think our most recent new film uh, that we reviewed was Luca. Uh, And then... I think by the time you're hearing this, our next Criterion episode will be Black Narcissus, which is, uh, sidebar, personally, one of my favorite films, and I could not be more excited. So Super appropriate, because last time you were on this show, we were talking Pal and Pressburger. We talked about The Red Shoes, yep. a movie we were both over the moon about that made Cinemust. Um, but even on that show, as we were gushing about how great The Red, Shoe, Red Shoes is, uh, you and I were both just like, ah, but Black Narcissus, <laughs> yep. that's... That's the best. That's the crown jewel. Yep. And the, so, yeah, there you go. Like, I, I have actually been hankering for a Black Narcissus fix since I recorded that episode with you last year. So, yeah, I am all about it, and I could not wait. So, uh, listeners, join me over at the Casual Cinecast, please, and thank you. And where can they join you? How oh, can they find you? Oh, pretty much everywhere podcasts are available. If you find a platform that we are somehow not on, then let me know, and I'll try to get that fixed but you can even youtube us if you want we're everywhere you can't you can't miss us casual cinecast everybody please go check out the casual cinecast um also go check out that episode of the red shoes that mike was on last with us it was tons of fun man and i'm really excited to have you back tonight thank you sir thank you thank you i'm happy to be here let's do some housekeeping before we get into that welcome back everybody we're so glad to have you here because the improvised trial we run decides along with all of you which movies truly deserve a spot on the list of essential cinema and mike and i just can't do that on our own so to determine if tonight's movie is going to earn a place on that list we're going to leave it up to all of you to cast your votes on the polls we're going to put out on our various social media pages So if you're not already doing so, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of which you can find simply by searching for Cinemust. There you can cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. The votes are going to go up this Friday. So while you all make sure you're following us on whichever of those platforms you prefer, I'm going to give you the rundown of how you're going to cast your vote. Each movie we discuss on the show is run through our system where it is placed into one of three categories. At the top tier, we have Cinemust, our namesake. It's a movie you recommend everybody see at least once in their lifetime. 
In the Middle is Sin of Trust, which is a movie that is probably really good, has a lot of merits, but you don't recommend it to everybody. It's only for some people. And at the bottom is Sin of Bust, which is a movie which, for whatever reason, you don't recommend to anybody. Doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean it's bad, but maybe it's just there's better uh, uses of your time. There's other movies you could recommend. So Mike and I tonight are going to discuss a film. We're going to vote into one of those three categories. And Mike, you really did me a solid here. And uh, I feel bad because this is kind of your thing is you you come on the show on assignment a lot of the time. I give you <laughs> something to work with. I say pick a movie within this specific set. So this one you're doing me a favor because this week I am celebrating my annual West Fest, watching a new Western every night because I love the genre. And people don't know this, whenever we talk or podcast, we are always talking about two things. Uh, Our mutual love of Black Narcissus is the best Palin Pressburger movie. Yep. And our mutual adoration of Westerns. (laughs) And so I hit you up and said, dude, I want to talk Westerns this week. Pick any Western. And what did you come up with? Yes. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, I am nothing if not on brand. (laughs) I chose The Oxbow Incident. And this is a film that I saw many a year ago uh, when I was first getting into westerns. It always stuck out to me. It's probably one of my favorite Henry Fonda performances. And I just saw this as a great opportunity to watch it again and talk about it with someone intelligent who I could get some fun thoughts off of, you know? I will go find somebody. <laughs> yeah, um, please, if you, if I'm, I was, I'm just here with you. It was a, it, it was a good pick, man. I mean, here I am. Just like, okay, let's have a conversation about a rootin' tootin' cowboy adventure. This will be so fun. And you've got to go and pick one of the more thought-provoking anti-Westerns ever put out there. So kudos to you for putting your own spin on this assignment. Like I said, I'm I'm nothing if not on brand. I am actually uh, crazy excited for this. It's been a long time since I'd seen the movie. And as we're going to go into right now... This is going to give us a ton to talk about. So let's get diving into the discussion. For anybody who is new to our show, uh, Mike and I are going to take a couple of minutes to be completely spoiler free. We're going to give you a brief plot summary, a gist of the movie. We're going to vote it into one of our three categories, Cinemust, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. And each of us will have to give three reasons apiece for why we voted into the category that we did. So if you have not seen the Oxbow incident, you're not sure if you want to, stick around for a couple minutes. We're going to be spoiler free and see if we can sell you on the movie. Which I guess starts by letting people know what it's about. So Mike, you get the plot summary on this one. If you could uh, give us the gist of the story without giving anything away, what would, what's the plot summary for the Oxbow incident? Sure. So uh, the basic plot line for the Oxbow incident is two cowboys sort of drift into a town where a crime has recently developed and a posse is starting to form. So they decide to partake in the posse and they hunt down who they suspect to be the the culprits. So, yeah, Frontier Justice. Sounds like a gritty, front, yeah, Frontier Justice adventure. Indeed. Hey, rip tootin', roaring good time. <laughs> in its moments, yeah. Um, for... For anybody who does not own the movie, which is probably a whole yeah, lot of us, all of you. <laughs> um, you can find it. Yeah, I definitely don't. Um, but it's really easy to find. Any video streaming platform where you're renting movies, uh, your YouTubes, your Amazon Prime videos, or I think it's just Prime Video, um, 
Apple movies or whatever they're called now. Pretty much anywhere, look up the Oxbow incident for four bucks. It's yours to rent. Um, and if you're not sure if the movie's worth four bucks, let's see if we can persuade you or dissuade you because I don't know how we're voting here. So, Mike, I'm going to kick it over to you. Cinemus, Cinetrust, or Cinebust, how are you going to vote for the Oxbow incident? Well, Mike, I have to go um, all in on Cinemust here. I think that this is a film that every person should watch, I think, as a shining example of the Western genre. All right. Uh, three reasons why. All right. So three reasons why. Here we go. Unlike a lot of Westerns, this highlights the ugliness of vengeance, right? This frontier justice. Um, two, all dialogue driven, right? There are no contrivances. It's all just there. And then three, there are no heroes. But Henry Fonda's in it. I know. You would think, wouldn't you? But we'll get into that. Yeah, I can't, can't do too much with spoilers, which I will do my best to speed us to because I, uh, I don't think we've ever disagreed on this show because I also am going to vote this Cinemust. I love the Oxbow incident. I think everybody should see it. And for a lot of the same reasons you do. My three reasons are, one, to me, this is proof of what a Western can do. And I don't know if you run into this, Mike, but loving Westerns is sometimes difficult because people see that or people see it as an outdated genre Mm -hmm. that is more problematic than it's worth putting critical work into. This movie really showcases like why the Western is a valuable genre to me, which is kind of ironic because my second reason I think everyone should see it is I think it is a very prime, but very often overlooked revisionist Western or an anti Western. Mm. And, uh, Thirdly, I think it's just this great, con- very concise study of justice and power. The movie clocks in at 75 minutes. Some TV shows have episodes longer than this movie. But in that time, like I think that this goes into a lot of things about how just the justice system is set up, how people exercise authority within that system. It's interesting to know who has power in this story. Like it is incredibly dense uh for being such a short movie so i am all in on this i think everybody should see the movie awesome yeah yeah we are in complete agreement there so i cannot wait to break it down further so i guess i would say if we both cinemusted it goes without saying we feel this is easily worth the four dollar rental fee even with the movie being as short as it is Mm -hmm. am i right oh absolutely i will say though um i watched it on amazon or prime video and I was not crazy about the transfer. I don't know if there's a better transfer on another streaming service, but that's my two cents. Uh, Amazon's didn't look super great. They, it's funny, you're like the third person to mention that lately. Like um, the Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels episode, we made a, a whole conversation about how bad Amazon's transfer of that was. Yeah, they're just not crushing it. So maybe go to one of the alternate ones. I personally just went down to my library and they had a copy on DVD, which looked like a DVD, but it was fine. Yeah. At least you won't have digital artifacting and stuff like that going on in pixelation. So yeah, that's... which is what Amazon has. <laughs> if anybody's going to watch on another platform, let us know how the transfer is. Maybe we can steer people towards a good one. Word. 
All right, Mike, uh, that's our public service announcement for video <laughs> quality. Is there anything else you want to talk about the movie spoiler-free to get people interested in it before we move into spoilers? Ooh, spoiler-free. Uh, let me say that while reading about it, uh, on like like you know reading up and brushing myself up on this film, I learned that uh, Henry Fonda was especially uh, fond of this movie. He considered this uh, to be one of like the two good movies he was making in this era of time, like you know pre Navy, you know, because after this movie he went and joined the Navy for a few years. But uh, there in the studio system, this was one of his favorite movies that he made in the in the early forties. So. Yeah, 1001 Movies book, that is like one of their little trivia blurbs. Every movie has a trivia blurb, and this one's is Henry Fonda considered this one of his favorite movies he made. Yeah, and so, you know, there you go. You got Mike, Mike, and Henry all recommending the Oxbow incident. (laughs) We're in great company. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, man, anything else before we dive in? No, let's do this thing. All right, so... Um, for those of you who have not seen the Oxbow incident, we highly recommend you go out, rent it, check it out, uh, especially before this weekend when you can cast your own vote on if this is going to make the list of essential cinema. Mike and I are going to try to convince you it is, but we've got to go into spoilers for it. So go ahead and pause the episode here, watch the movie and come back to us. This is the official spoiler warning for the Oxbow incident. My dear wife, Mr. Davies will tell you what's happening here tonight. He's a good man and has done everything he can for me. I suppose there's some other good men here, too, only they don't seem to realize what they're doing. They're the ones I feel sorry for, because it'll be over for me in a little while, but they'll have to go on remembering for the rest of their lives. Man just naturally can't take the law into his own hands and hang people without hurting everybody in the world, because then he's just not breaking one law, but all laws. Law's a lot more than words you put in a book. Our judges or lawyers or sheriffs you hire to carry it out. It's everything people ever have found out about justice and what's right and wrong. It's the very conscience of humanity. There can't be any such thing as civilization unless people have a conscience. Because if people touch God anywhere, where is it except through their conscience? And what is anybody's conscience except a little piece of the conscience of all men that ever lived? I guess that's all I got to say except kiss the babies for me and God bless you. Your husband, Donald. All right, Mike, the, the gloves are off. We can talk about any old spoilery thing we want to about the Oxbow incident. I would love to hear your take on this as uh highlighting the ugliness of vengeance it's kind of interesting that a movie from 1942 starring henry fonda this should be the highlight of all giddy western adventures this should be a rip rootin adventure about good versus evil there should not be any ugliness how does this movie do that i'm glad you asked sir uh well like uh like you mentioned many westerns coming out around this time were not really concerned with being thoughtful Right. Just look at what else came out in 1942. Uh, You know, I did a quick Google and John Wayne was making like the soldier, you know, and it's just all this, you know, contrived shootouts and all this stuff. Right. And, And heroism and all this. And in this movie, there's this idea on display that people will disregard the truth 
if they have a large enough group to go along with them. You know, as long, they can know it's a lie, but as long as they're not the only ones doing it, that's fine. Uh, people claiming to want justice in this film don't even seem interested in the values they are claimed to be representing. So it, it just reminds me very much of modern day politics. If you've been paying attention to what's been going on the last four years or more, I don't really want to get into that or alienate anyone, but I found it very truthful and very honest. This idea that, you know, you, you can ban up for justice and think you're doing right, but when it comes down to it, none of these men were really wanting justice. They, you know, they wanted blood. So I, I find that, you know, usually like, there's two kinds of vengeance tales. There's something like this, and then there's something like Kill Bill. Or, you know what I mean? Or, right. or The Revenant. Right, The Revenant. Or, like, you know, even parts of the Man With No Name trilogy. Stuff all, like, all these Western cliches and tropes of this idea that, you know, if you're wronged, you can go get revenge and shoot everyone up, and it's, it's cool and good. But then there's this, where it just shows you that, like, what is the cost of revenge? You know, what does it cost you? And the final scene, when Henry Fonda reads that letter, you know, and, and the dude that they're getting ready to kill pities them. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, I, damn. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you make a strong point, and that's something I was fascinated with pretty early on, is in this story of vengeance on the trail for justice, that this is about a, a posse getting together to avenge a murder of a beloved staple of the community. And I love how the movie establishes right from the first scene that most of this is born out of the fact that everyone in this town is just really bored. Yeah, there's only five things to do. <laughs> Which are? Oh, I can't remember. There's, okay, gambling, drinking, fighting. And? Sleeping? And eating? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. What's the last one? Help me. Uh, I, got, I got to go through it. So it's... Eat, sleep, drink, play poker, fight, or you can play pool in the back. I got a new table. That's it. That's it. <laughs> pool in the back. Billiards. Yeah. But yeah, you just pointed out like everything in that town is so melancholy. And, and Henry Fonda, and maybe you're, maybe I'm stealing your point about how there's no heroes. Henry Fonda, Tom Joad himself, um, this predates 12 Angry Men, but you know, Henry Fonda, the harbinger of justice and right. He's kind of a drunken boob when he first shows up, and all he really wants to do is pick fights with people just to get some exercise, as Harry Morgan says. Yeah. And that, to me, there's this question I want to talk about as we have this conversation. I I want to know if, like, the direction of that this... Uh, I want to know if the direction Henry Fonda takes in this movie of being kind of cast outside of his type if that is to be commended or if the movie kind of wastes his star power, because I personally feel as the story goes on and the posse catches the men and we have the whole kangaroo court in, in my memory of this movie from years ago, this was basically 12 angry men in the West. It was Henry mm -hmm. Fonda being the yeah. voice of reason and watching it again today. It's like he has a dissenting vote. Like he sticks up for the guys occasionally, but he's, incredibly ineffectual and he backs down really easily he's kind of a bystander he's not even the guy that argues most vehemently for everyone to calm down that's um the shopkeeper davies 
Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I'll just kind of hop off on that point. The no heroes thing. Um, yeah, there are no John Waynes, right? There are no um, save the day kind of guys. There aren't even any anti-heroes, much less regular heroes. These are all just normal guys, normal men. Even Henry Fonda, who we expect to be good, right? Because he's got such a nice face and everyone loves him. The only thing that makes him good is just he's less bloodthirsty than the rest of the town. <laughs> You know, and so he doesn't save the day uh, or give any profound speeches before hanging them that changes anyone's minds. He's just a guy who doesn't want to stick his neck out too much and be on the wrong end of the mob justice himself. Mm -hmm. It's it's not even the idea that there are no heroes. It's like there aren't even anti-heroes in the classic sense of Westerns. You know what I mean? There's there are just there are just a bunch of people who are incapable of of swaying the mob you know it's it's gonna do what it's gonna do i I was gonna say like there's barely villains even i mean it's like you said the villains are this mob of guys that are out for blood kind of just riding the emotional reaction of a few people that actually knew kincaid Mm -hmm. um but yeah like there's no there's no clear-cut lines here there's no bandits that we have to capture there's no you know, Native Americans trying to raid the stagecoach right. or anything like all of the enemies come from within, which is the same place any quote unquote heroes would. So it's just this mess of ambiguity, which is, I mean, all of this is going to your point about there being no heroes. It's also going to my point about this being one of the earliest and really greatest revisionist Westerns mm-hmm. that white hats and black hats aren't around anymore. And even Henry Fonda is kind of a grouchy old cuss and he's a pretty ineffectual yeah. hero. Yeah. And you know, it's something I didn't even think about when watching it, but you know, something you stated really um clicked in my brain. This is pre 12 angry men, right? Like a lot of I think when people go back yeah. and they look like people our age, you know, who were younger who didn't live during the time this movie came out. I think whenever we go back and we look at Henry Fonda, we expect 12 Angry Men in the West. Like you said, that's kind of how I remembered this movie as well. And it's hard to imagine being, you know, but at the time these audiences saw this movie, there was no 12 Angry Men movie yet, right? Right. And so Henry Fonda was just an actor. And so I wonder if back then, maybe it hit differently, right? People weren't expecting Henry Fonda to be as much of a hero. But then again, this was also made in 1942 and released in 43. And John Wayne was all over the place, you know, being a hero left and right. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just an interesting, an interesting idea. This, this thing I didn't think of. It's like, this is basically 12 Angry Men, right? But not as effective and, and, and a little different. And that just did not, didn't hit me the first time, but it did this time. especially when you said that. So... Here's a here's a question for you, and I need to do a little build up here for this question. But so, what works for a lot of the movie is the way it's kind of an anti-Western. That the line between good guys and bad guys isn't there anymore. That it's about moral ambiguity. That mm. I mean, it even lacks like sweeping vistas and like you know gorgeous shots of the wilderness, which I think is a budgetary thing because the movie had to be done on the cheap to make Daryl F. Zanuck actually fund it. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Uh, he, he actually, um, originally, uh, I think William Wellman had to buy the rights to this because originally the person who had the rights 
wanted Mae West to be like a saloon owner or some or a worker, yeah. right? And <laughs> it was all supposed to revolve around her somehow. And and uh, Wellman was like, eh, "No, thank you. I'll buy this and and yeah, shop can, it around." Yeah, can you picture she done him wrong, shoved into the middle? Right. Of this? Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it would just been so unnecessary. I mean, so anyway, where I was going is like with all these things it does to be kind of decidedly anti-Western, mm-hmm. I think it's still vital that it is a Western. Oh, I don't think like this is just like, oh, it's you take the plot of 12 Angry Men, you can put it in the West or you can put it on a spaceship or you know, whatever. <laughs> it works. Whatever. Right. I think like this movie's success and its longevity is actually really dependent on it being a Western, but I, what do you think? Do the, does the fact that it makes so many decisions to be anti-Western kind of a slap in the face? You know, maybe to audiences at the time, right? But now, I mean, we've had a lot of revisionist Westerns, and and I think those are the ones that transcend the genre, right? Like, uh, you know, I can name some people in my family that don't like Westerns, but I can also show those people like The Unforgiven starring Clint Eastwood and they will like it, you know? And I think that movie counts as a revisionist Western as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's necessary for the genre to branch out of pulp. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think I love pulp Westerns. Don't get me wrong. I love spaghetti Westerns. I love all kinds of Westerns, but you know, these thoughtful introspective Westerns like this, I think are, are there to like, add gravitas to a genre that is otherwise easily dismissed if you're not into the the iconography of it all you know uh-huh also probably helps a lot of the more problematic handlings of how they treat native americans how they treat women like sure. addressing these issues which we should get to in a second i think the gender lines that are drawn in oxbow incident are particularly interesting um but yeah i, I mean you you just said it beautifully i think one of the reasons, like, and this is proof of what a Western can do, Oxbow Incident is, is it's all there. It's still firmly a Western. The first shot is this, pan, or, uh, yeah, panning shot into the town. You know, there's a saloon, there's the rich house at the end, there's whiskey, there's hats, there's horses, there's a brief stagecoach chase. Like, it's it's firmly a Western, but it is using this story to address issues of how the justice system works, how our ethics operate around law and order. And I think Westerns are especially posed to address those issues because of when they take place, that it's a uniquely American genre that deals primarily with American history at a time when our values were still being tested and proven. And I think people discount them without giving them credit for being able to work through issues like this. So Oxbow Incident would be one I would throw at them first because it's so short, because it's so heavy. And like you said, it's really current with its debate. I thought it was weird listening to the audio commentary that they said the guy that wrote the book wrote it because he wanted to address issues that were going on with Hitler in Europe and the rise of fascism with Hitler and Mussolini. And he was like, I wanted to write a story that showed that could happen here. And I was like, could happen here? Lynchings have been part of American history for forever. What do you mean it could happen here? Yeah, right. Yeah, but, you know, like I said earlier, like, you know, I made an, uh, a nod to modern day politics now. You know, it's like 
he was maybe he's right in like yeah literally lynchings took place here all the time it's a very american west uh thing you know and all kinds of unjust behavior over the course of america's existence right but you know if he is making this to comment on like fascism going on in europe uh i think he was obviously dead on the idea that fascism could take root here as well and and has since this film has been made you know so here's here's kind of what i want to go I know we have labeled this mob as bloodthirsty, that they want to hang somebody. Like, there there are these lines scattered all over the place that everyone's like, oh, we haven't had a good hanging in a while. We've never seen a triple hanging all at once, mm-hmm. all these things. I think the movie does right by at least, I don't want to say humanizing them because it doesn't do that, but if we can, let's just talk about this kangaroo court scene that makes up like the last act of the movie. These guys want somebody to hang. It's not a totally foregone conclusion. They ask some pretty probing questions. They try to get some facts that to be frank, I don't know how satisfied I would be with a lot of those answers either. I mean, if you're in, if you're in their shoes and they're giving you these lines of like, Hey, you've got this dead guy's pistol. Yeah. Oh yeah. I found it. Hey, you've got his cows. Where's your receipt? He didn't write one. Hey, you who works for him, does he ever sell cows without giving a receipt? No, I've never seen him do that. Like, there is reasonable doubt in my mind for these guys mm-hmm. at the very least. What do you think? Yeah, they, you know, the movie does all, checks all the boxes to where the stars align for this, this lynching to go through. I think where, where the mob loses me is you're you're right. They did ask questions. Definitely looks guilty in in a lot of from certain perspectives. But the idea that they couldn't just ride back to town and wait for the sheriff. Like this idea yes. that like it has to happen now. And like the one dude who's like started the whole thing, he just doesn't seem to like respect the justice system, right? And he he gets everyone else riled up because he's like justice moves slow if it works at all and then lawyers and all that stuff and it's like you know, you hear that now in a lot of things and, and all that, but the idea that they knew he had a wife and kids, you know, they knew that it was like a, an old man who had loose senses, right, who wasn't all there. And then, you know, the other guy, you know, the mysterious guy, um, he's probably the most guilty seeming of all of them because he's not apologetic or whatever. But his request wasn't crazy. You know what I mean? He gave enough reasonable doubt to where, like, all they had to do was just ride back to the town, wait a few hours, and then sort it all out. But they weren't going to do that. They were never going to do that. Even if I'm convinced that, like, even if the evidence hadn't looked so bad against them, they didn't ride all that way to not hang somebody. Which is indicative of this thing Westerns do over and over and over that I love. Or I guess I shouldn't say that love because this is going to sound dark, but... (laughs) I love viewing Westerns through this scope of like how they reflect the American ideal of like rugged individualism and that people in Westerns are constantly trying to go to a place that is so backwater and so isolated that they can finally just do whatever they feel like. Like to a lot of people, that is liberty is I can do whatever I want. And I'm out here Mm -hmm. in this small town that's got 20 people. So who are you to say that I can't do it? I'm miles away from any form of civilization or at the very least like these justice systems, like you say, that move too slow, which 
I'm glad you mentioned, like, there's some validity there that sure. the wheels get spinning too much for their own sake. But that's really what this is about. And it's what a ton of other Westerns are about is a lot of these guys are on a power trip. And especially, oh, who is the major who runs the whole posse? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hang on. Let me look. Tetley. Yeah. I mean, that that guy, he's self-appointed head of this posse because he has a With uniform. With his confederate uniform. <laughs> yeah. A, a uniform for a rebel army that lost a war that he was never even a part of in the first place. Yeah. This is what gives him authority. And this, I'm obsessed in this movie with trappings of authority, like the positions people are in that gives them power and authority, like how they get it. I mean, the deputy too, really just wanting to not be just a deputy and, you know, breaking the law so that he can deputize the whole posse just so he can feel like a big shot. But yep. he basically turns everything over to Tedley. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's by, in his nature, it seems like he's a, uh, a number two, but he doesn't view himself that way, but just kind of falls into line when someone with a louder, most boisterous voice steps up. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. He, he's more of just like an enabler, really. Like he was like what the mob needed to make it, quote, legitimate. You know what I mean? And and beyond that, they didn't have any use for him. But I think the mob probably would have taken place with or without him, you know? Oh, for sure. And that's that's kind of another interesting angle of the story is like you just said, this was going to happen. But if they can give it uh, an air of authority, the trappings of being legitimate. Right. Then all of a sudden it's more acceptable. But you know, none of that matters. They're going to do what they're going to do. And there's kind of some gray area here because they still take majority vote on whether or not to hang these guys. And that's democracy. Yeah, that's true. That that's kind of I mean, like to an extent, there is a certain logic to it, but it's also. It's it's like their own law, because like there is that implication at the end when the sheriff comes back, there is a sort of an implication that like they will probably get arrested or some of them will. Mm hmm. There's this idea that, like, a mob on the fly on the frontier like that can sort of create laws and decide who lives and who dies. But then they're also, even though they're in this backwoods thing, there is still the overarching society that they're not trying to participate in, right? That will have some sort of judgment on them at the end of this whole thing. Which is beautifully coupled with the judgment they're going to lay on themselves at the end when Henry Fond is reading the letter. And props to all the, the guys sitting around the bar because those are. Some solemn look, solemn looking guys. Like you see the pain in their eyes as he reads that line. He says, "Like I feel sorry for them because for me it's about to be over in a couple minutes, but they're gonna have to remember this for the rest of their lives." Like that is an amazing gut punch. Yeah, and you know, and it's something that so could so easily feel on the nose and kind of contrived, but it doesn't. I don't know. Like it works for me. Like Henry Fonda's delivery of it. Yeah. This idea that like this letter's been talked about the whole movie and that and Davies is like, I wish you'd read the letter. Will you read the letter? Hey, sir, would you like to read the letter? Like, you know, he like asks everyone to read the letter and no one wants to do it. And then finally, the shame, right? This like the the overwhelming shame and realization that they were on the wrong side of the pitchfork. You know, it's just. It's so poignant, I, I think, and in and, and all the right ways. It's this great summation, too, of the movies grappling between, like, what is individual power and responsibility versus communal responsibility, that 
that line in the letter about how justice is this collective, I, I kind of paraphrasing it, but justice sure. is like this collection of what all mankind has learned about what mm-hmm. justice is or the law is that. And, you know, we're all just a tiny piece of this greater whole, but the movie is also about like, what if people don't want that? A lot of people have problems with not having an individual voice, with being a part of this system that is largely ineffectual. Yeah. And the, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, back to my first point, this, this idea that if you can get enough people to go along with a lie, you almost will convince yourself that it's not a lie, even though you know it is, right? Like there's this, mm-hmm. there's this idea, I think, on display in this, this film, at least that I got this time watching it, which is, you know, like the son yells at the dad, at his father at the end of the movie. He's like, you just wanted to hurt something. That's, that's all you know is just cruelty and pain. And it's this idea that if, an, if someone with authority is telling you that it's right, even if you know in your gut that it's not, you don't want to fight against it because it feels good. Right? They, they want to mm. hang somebody, and they have the excuse now to lose that momentum would be to, ad, to admit they're wrong and that they, there is reasonable doubt on display here and they should ride back to town and all that stuff. But just this idea that I'm going to willfully ignore these things and, and buy into the thing that we all know is a lie and that I know are, are half truths and and falsehoods just to make this happen. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, back in the frontier when posses were like a thing and this was a pretty regular idea that, you see this idea in, in movies after this, I, you know, this idea of like a, a posse gone crazy. Like there's another Criterion film, or this isn't a Criterion film, but there is a Criterion film called Ride in the Whirlwind with Jack Nicholson and Warren Oates. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you seen this film? I've seen The Shooting, but I haven't seen Ride the Whirlwind. Okay, so Ride in the Whirlwind is, is a lot like this film in the sense that it's about Jack Nicholson and his party. And they are being chased by a posse out for out for blood because someone was killed, you know, and Jack Nicholson's party didn't do it, but that doesn't matter. They're going to have to fight for their lives and, and possibly murder people just to survive the posse. So it's almost like this idea of the, the posse creates criminals because it's so unjust in its very nature. The idea of a posse, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this, this quest and this bloodthirst yeah. for justice will oftentimes uh, create more problems even in creating criminals uh, and fugitives whenever there need not be, you know? Yeah. And Oxbow kind of dabbles in that because Juan makes a break for it and takes a bullet to the leg. And, you know, they kind of make this case like, oh, you know, only the guilty flee. And it's like, well, wouldn't you try to run if you saw there was literally no other way out, no matter how innocent you were? Yeah, it's like like whenever, like in movies, like whenever the scientist is like, they're crazy. And then like everything they do to try to prove they're not crazy makes them look more crazy. Right. It's like, yeah, if the posse surrounds you and it's like, did you do this? And you're like, no, uh, odds are they won't believe you as evidenced in the movie. Right. So why not run? Why not fight for your life? You know what I mean? Because at this point, justice doesn't really apply. Which props to, I mean, again, it was kind of a budgetary decision, but that lack of like, you know, big wide shots of Monument Valley, like keeping everything really close I think it adds like this sense of claustrophobia, which pays off in spades. Cause when this whole mock trial is going on, 
I think this movie does an amazing job of helping you feel the plight of these three guys. Oh, yeah. that they are giving out all the right answers. They're behaving in all the right ways, but you can just see they know how screwed they are. They know there's just no way they're going to get out of this. And the movie's kind of harrowing in that way. Yeah. Even the, um, the final hanging scene, right? Um, whenever, whenever one of them is like crying and being like, no, I don't want to, you know, please don't. And then, and then what is it? Uh, Juan, right? Is that his name? The, the guy who's traveling with him? Anthony Quinn's. Yeah. yeah, he's basically like, oh, what company to die? And like, this guy's already resigned to mm-hmm. his fate. You know, he's he wants to die like a badass. You know, drinking right. whiskey, not crying, not giving him the satisfaction. And then so it's like all three men sort of take different approaches to it. The old man kind of lays hands off and then just hopes that it'll all work out best and then cries when it doesn't work out. One dude's begging and pleading the whole time, throwing out all the right answers, the alibis, the fact that he's got a family. And then you have the stoic, quiet one who probably knows he's screwed. And he just wants to yep. look for his opportunity to escape and then not give them the satisfaction of crying and begging for his life. And those are all three different ways that you can approach death in this situation. And they all kind of represent one element of that, I think. And I, that's pretty fascinating to me. Yeah. And it's a great buildup. Like he tetly gives them, I think, the two minutes to pray and... I don't think screen time wise, it's actually two minutes, but it feels like it, like they do give some time for that. Like, I mean, it feels dirty to call it suspense building because you're, you know, you're leading to this execution that is really tastefully, but still harrowingly shot. I feel with like that silhouette of the guys hanging there and, um, Tetley telling him to finish the guy. Like it's, it's brutal. It is. And it's just cruel and and like oh that that shot at the end whenever they leave and everyone has like their head kind of hanging low like the deed is done and like uh you know they look back and you see like the shadow of the three men on the ground uh on the hill that's that was a that's a great shot and you know i was thinking when watching this movie this time the the nighttime scenes look so great because usually in these westerns uh it's like day for night Right, which doesn't yeah. always look good. There's like harsh shadows and high contrast where there shouldn't be. The fact that this was filmed on a budget in like a studio, I think uh, creates some beautiful looking nighttime shots that feel like nighttime in a way that a lot of Westerns don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think they were able to light it and shoot it in a way that you could probably tell it's a studio, but like it almost makes it more effective because... Uh, like, and my, my last point, uh, it's all dialogue driven. It, this feels like it could be a play. Yeah. You know, with a, with a little bit of alteration to the script, you know, it could all take place in like two acts in like two different locations. And, you know, it's all driven by dialogue and performances. There, there are no contrived shootouts or standoffs and not even any real action sequences of any kind. It trusts the audience to be interested without needless side plots and set pieces that uh, don't amount to anything but, you know, action. And the movie is just not concerned with that. It's another one of those really good anti-Western moves I'm applauding it for is Henry Fonda gets into two fights. He gets into one at the beginning. And and then also when, um, before they're hanging the guys, somebody like pistol whips Martin and Henry Fonda like dives in to defend him or whatever. It's it's a really sloppy, just dog pile of a fight. Like it, none of it is shot to look heroic or like Henry Fonda is going to jailbreak these guys. Like it is just this almost embarrassing, sloppy fist fight between a bunch of guys who are just 
overly tired and not that skilled at fighting anyways. Yeah, guys who have been up all night, <laughs> they're sleepy, they're grumpy. Yeah, yeah. So I agree. It's like this sort of, there's a certain amount of chaos and realness to the fight, whereas like a lot of times fights in these movies can seem like really, let me pull my punches and let me like throw you over the bar and like yeah. toss you out the saloon doors and all that stuff. And this is very much just sort of like people falling down and like the, the punches sort of like hit in weird places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which not exclusively this movie's forte, but yeah, for it to, k- to kind of go nowhere, for the whole movie to be like, they're going to lose this one. Like, mm-hmm. right. Doesn't win this one. These guys hang. And to go back to what you said, when we started the spoiler discussion, like they really only needed to wait literally five minutes. Like this was the original ending to the mist 60 years before the fact. It was like, you guys needed to hold on just a tiny bit longer. Right. Yeah. Um. So question for you talking about how you know tight the movie is that it's a short 75 minutes. What do you make of this sequence with the stagecoach and uh, Henry Fonda's old beau popping out with her new husband? Yeah, see, that that's, that scene stuck out to me the first time and this time I saw the film. I'm sure maybe there is something to that, but it seems sort of unnecessary to the overall movie other than just to add um, a speaking part for a, like a lady in there somewhere. It doesn't really do a whole lot with Henry Fonda's character, uh, in my opinion. But it's also not really, it doesn't really grind the movie to a halt either, because it sort of gives you this, not necessarily point of view, but sort of look into what's it like for a woman in the West, you know, in this town waiting for these drifters to come in in and out. Like, she doesn't owe him anything if he's just going to drift around and then mosey on back when he wants to. It's like she has a life to live and she you know, has every right to do this thing. So I, I don't know. I, I view it as sort of like valuable in the sense that like, it gives you sort of like this, um, look into the other sex mm-hmm. besides the, the male dominated stuff that we see in Westerns all the time, but it's a little too slight for me to get much more out of it than that. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where I read like why it's there too, because the movie is very clearly talking about, how issues of power are kind of aligned with gender and racial lines. Yeah. And I think we see that with this opposites of the character of Ma and Rose, that Rose is kind of the, this could be any pretty woman because this is her place in the old West. It's not to have opinions or thoughts. It's Mm -hmm. just to be married. Um, And on the flip side of that, Ma has a place basically by eschewing all of like these traditional feminine traits in these types of movies that she's one of the boys. She has this like really boisterous laugh. She's just as bloodthirsty and cruel as all of them. She'll, she's even the one that volunteers to whip one of the horses out from one of the guys when nobody will volunteer after all that, like, yeah, let's hang him. Ma's the only one that'll actually like do the deed, you know? And I just, I thought that this whole scene with the stagecoach was interesting because on first glance, I was like, that doesn't seem to be there for more than like have the stagecoach thing to introduce some action. But I think how the movie aligns like femininity with basically all traits that are undesirable in this world of survival, that 
you know, having empathy or wanting to follow the code of law and taking these guys to fair trial are seen as like cowardly and in this kind of leap of logic, but the movie states point blank, like femininity is equal to cowardice because they keep telling guys like mm-hmm. you're handling this like a woman. No female boy is going to carry my name is what yeah, the major tells boy. his son. And so it's, it's just kind of interesting to me, like ineffectual action is seen as like a typical feminine trait in the movie. And yet it's, like all the men are ineffectual at everything they do, which I think is where they're, you know, this whole episodes comes from is everybody's frustrated. They can't do anything and they have no power. And what gives you a feeling of greater power than having control over life and death? It's interesting that you said that the, uh, this, the gender roles being tied up within actions, right? Like the idea of being like, uh, intelligent and thoughtful and well-spoken and, and, uh, con and like, conscious of your morals uh is seen as like effeminate right and right that is fascinating because like yeah the character of like ma or or whatever her name is i forget um it's almost like she's overcompensating mm-hmm. right it's like it's like she has to be the loudest and most vicious one because that's her survival mechanism right rose can get married and she can have a life that's her survival mechanism right it's like your options are like be a, be a prostitute <laughs> be one of the boys or like marry a man. Right. And so I think her part in this is to sort of, yeah, to be a contrast to that and show you another example of like the dynamics between, you know, these drifters romanticizing these ladies that they're going to come back to one day. And the reality of the ladies that have to live in these backwoods towns with these men, it's like, uh, it's like not safe. It's not, You know what I mean? It's like she has to survive, right? So it's fascinating in the sense that like it highlights the unfairness of it all and just the the way the social dynamics worked back then for genders, you know, and and it's pretty fascinating. And I think the scene also has a place in terms of like poking at this difference between like, well, you're going to be like a a man of action or you're going to, you know, be take the thoughtful way because that that standoff between Henry Fonda and Rose's new husband, you know, he the husband represents basically what Davis is standing for, you know, civilization and these codes of law. He comes from San Francisco, but he's such a smarmy superior little punk that Henry Fonda just wants to clock and so I think like you know, that scene kind of riles up Henry Fonda to kind of stick with the posse for a little bit and I think it kind of accounts for why he is still so like gruff when they jump on the guys while they're sleeping. And he's like, Hey, don't reach for that gun, mister. This is a posse in case you were wondering. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that all that is fed with like, this is the guy that my, my true love ran off with. Right. Yeah. Like this is, this is the man she prefers. Well, this is the life she chooses. Yeah. This is the greater truth. We're all supposed to supposedly supposed to aspire to as a civilization. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, this idea of, um, in the movie, the, the, the main characters be, not necessarily the main characters, but like the idea that if you are thoughtful or all that stuff, there is a certain amount of masculinity that you lack. It's fascinating because Gary Cooper was originally offered this film and turned it down. And the film went through a number of stages to finally get into production due to the eye and then finally was done on a small budget all for like the political 
implications of it and what this movie is saying about people. Um, and I think that's pretty fascinating that even like, you know, big stars like Gary Cooper might have, I don't want to say he viewed the film as like effeminate, but I don't think that he saw the main character as someone that he wanted to, to be, or, you know, lend his face to, uh, whereas like Henry Fonda did. And I think that's actually interesting in and of itself. So I guess now that we've talked about it for a while, I'll, I'll repose the question I teased at the start of this discussion. Is Henry Fonda's decision to basically perform this character against type to not be just like the true blue hero or the guy that's going to stand up for justice and get the law to win the day? Like, is that a strength of this movie or are they kind of wasting Henry Fonda's star power by making him kind of a bystander and kind of a guy that ultimately decides to keep his head down because he can at least protect his own neck. I think it's to the movie's strength, to be honest with you. I don't think you're wasting Henry Fonda. I think this is why you hire Henry Fonda. Mm. Like, I think Henry Fonda understood the movie they were making. And I think, you know, the the producers and, and Gary Cooper probably did too. I don't want to insult their intelligence. But whereas, like, Henry Fonda saw value in doing that. The others see it as, like, not marketable or not cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know the reasons it didn't get made, but, you know, as I was reading up on this, uh, I, I was reading that Henry Fonda, actually, his, some of his enthusiasm stemmed from the fact that he saw a lynching when he was 14. Yeah. I, I, I like to think that Fonda approached this getting it, understanding what this movie's saying, and, and agreeing with it and, and, and endorsing it by, by acting in it to a certain degree. And it's like, there's no ego here about like, well, I need my close-ups. I need, I need to like win the fight. You know what I mean? I, I need to like come out on top. I need to be filmed taller than everyone else. And I got to look cool. Like there's no ego, like leading man bullshit in it. Right. It's just, it seems like he identified with the messages. And I think accepting a role that quote wastes him is a, is shows lack of ego. in from my perspective. And I, so I, couldn't have said it better myself. I'm with you on all of that. And I, I also think it, it not only makes the movie more interesting, it kind of makes it more fun. Like, how fun is it in that opening scene that instead of Henry Fonda starting this bar fight, I, I mean, in a traditional Western, he wouldn't start it. He would, you know, be getting picked on by some drunkard and he would still win yeah. the fight in glorious fashion. How fun is it to see Henry Fonda pick this fight for no other petty reason than he needs the exercise? And really only land one punch before he's knocked out by a whiskey bottle. I mean, that's, yeah. that's great. Screaming Yoo-Hoo or Yahoo or whatever, whatever, woohoo, yeah. or whatever it is he says. It's like really funny. <laughs> and then he gets, yeah, he gets a thing of water thrown in his face to wake him back up like that. That's so much meatier than just like, I'm always right. And I always stand up for what's good. Right. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the white hat and you know, the black hat's gonna going to cross me and I'm going to be justified in anything I do to him. Yeah, I mean, you you really nailed it because to speak of how this movie, it has ties to present issues and I know this isn't like a world-ending thing, but there's actors to this day that are still like that. They're like, I'm not going to do this movie because I don't get to kill the bad guy or I don't what? have enough screen yeah. time. And it's like, well, what is that? okay, well, you just threw away like one of the most interesting roles your career might have had. Yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, it's like... Um... Vin Diesel and The Rock, you ever hear about the, their feud on the Fast and the yeah, Furious oh yeah. movies? It's like two like mediocre actors that are just trying to be like the toughest guy in the room. It's just like so dumb. And it just comes out ego, right? It's like that makes me like both of those actors less. Like I want the actors who have no ego 
don't take themselves so seriously and are are willing to look bad if it's something like a project that they feel good about and represent and is saying something that they want to endorse, you know? Henry Fonda is the prime example I go to of a, a star willing to gamble on their image with another Western I hope to talk about someday, Once Upon a Time in the West, Ooh, yes, where he's the bad guy. And it's the best example of stunt casting that ever got pulled off. He's incredible in it. Yeah, he really is. And, you know, Henry Fonda has a way of saying Mr. Yeah. <laughs> that just doesn't sound dumb. Like, if I were like, what are you doing, Mr.? Like, they would laugh at me. It'd be stupid. It would be, right? But, like, yeah. Henry Fonda can call someone Mr. And you're like, ooh. All right. You know, it's just... I've noticed that in a lot of his movies. I don't know if you have, but he uses Mr. a lot. Yeah, no, I have. I, as, as soon as you said that, I could hear it echo across basically everything. Even On Golden Pond, which I watched a couple weeks ago, I could hear it. Oh, I love On Golden Pond. Yeah, it's a fun time. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a little bittersweet movie that I, I, I like quite a bit. You know, so I was reading, did you know the director, Samuel Fuller, uh, was a big fan of this film? I think he said it was the best Western he ever saw. Yes, and I don't know how familiar know. you are. Yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with Samuel Fuller, but I see that all over his work. Like, he is all about, like, poignant societal issues that he wants to shine a light on, you know what I mean? And uh, mm -hmm. this movie feels like it could have been made by Samuel Fuller if, you know, it had been made 30, 40 years later. Yeah. And what's funny is I think I can see this influence even more in his non-Western movies. Like, I can see a lot of Naked Kiss yeah. coming from Oxbow. Shock incident. Corridor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Samuel Fuller was a guy with a lot of opinions, and uh, I think he's a vastly underrated director. Uh, fascinating guy. Oh, yeah. The Big Red One, White Dog, just great stuff. Oh, he, I actually have this Eclipse series from him. Uh, he has actually has a Western called I, uh, I Shot Jesse James. Yeah. And it actually deals good with like, a little bit of homoeroticism that is kind of recreated in uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Like the bathtub scene, wherever Robert mm -hmm. Ford is watching Jesse James bathe. It's in both of those movies. I would love to talk about Samuel Fuller movie sometime. Yeah, well, you got my number. You have my information. Just look me up and let me know. You got it, man. Um, I feel I have made my three points about why the movie's a cinemust. Um, before I ask you if you've made yours, I do have one question about one of your points. You've pointed this out as a dialogue-driven movie. Do you have a favorite line of dialogue? Oh. I don't know that it's a favorite line, but it's, yeah, I guess it's not even really Henry Fonda's. It's the letter, right? Like the whole letter at the yeah. end of the film that Henry Fonda reads, like that's, that's perfection right there to me. Like that whole thing, like Fonda's delivery intercut with like the, the long faces of these dudes who know for a fact that they are murderers now and they have no excuse. And, the law will be coming for them soon. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, the whole letter. I don't have a specific line. I don't think. Well, you can't, you can't pick it apart. It all flows together. So it's, it's like a sermon that's not overly evangelical. Yeah. Yeah. But what about you? Do you have a favorite line? I mean, I mean, it's hard to argue with that, but there was one that stuck out early on um, where he's having like his tit a tat with the bartender and he's really gruff. And I think, um, they're, they're kind of toying around with accusing the two of them of being these rustlers because they're in towns so 
not often. Um, Henry Honda just has this great line that was something like, you're talking about my business, stick to my pleasures. And that was like another one of those lines along with you saying like whenever he says misters, I was just like, dang, you don't mess with Henry Fonda. <laughs> Anyways, um, any of your points why this is a must-see movie that we haven't totally fleshed out or gotten into yet? No, other than just to say that this was a gamble for the time. And even now, like studios shy away from from taking risks like this, you know? Just the idea that this thing was made to begin with and has stood the test of time. It is now one of the quintessential Westerns. You know, this this almost antithesis of a Western has become a shining example of the genre. And uh, I don't know. I think it's great. I think there would be no movies like, like The Wild Bunch without this. I think there'd be no movies like The Unforgiven without this. You know, this the impact of this movie is... Like, I don't even know if there'd be a 12 Angry Men movie without this. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. who knows the the effect that this movie could have had on people, but it's resonated, right? It's it's in your book. You know, it's in, it's always got great reviews unanimously all over the board. So, you know, if you're not into Westerns, just try it. It's, yeah. I think it, it moves enough. It's kinetic enough. It's not boring. It's short. It's breezy. Yeah. You know, just, there's no reason not. It's relevant today, culturally. So I started this whole thing off kind of giving you a hard time. Like, I thought we were going to go traditional, you know, Cowboys. I, I, I thought we were going to pick Rio Bravo, which is a great movie. But I, I like if it. you'd asked me to put money on what movie you're going to pick, I thought you were going to do Rio Bravo. Um, but the more <laughs> we've talked, the more you're like, this is such a great movie to talk about for if we're like trying to share our love of Westerns because of everything you just said. Like, this movie can convince doubters how great a western can be and so many of them are really really fantastic and i hope we get to talk about oodles more of them on this show but Mm -hmm. um i've yet to show it to somebody who didn't like it it's one of those movies yeah you know uh like my girlfriend she was actually you know i was watching it at on uh at her house and she actually had a meeting because she you know works from home and she's like pause it (laughs) And I didn't, you know, she was like, actually like watching it. I was just kind of watching it and I thought she was kind of doing her own thing, you know, but she actually requested that I pause it and wait till she was done with the meeting to resume it so she could see how it wrapped up. Fantastic. Yeah. So there you go. Even if you're only like partly watching it and you didn't intend to sit down to watch it, apparently it's gripping enough to where you will want to see the end. And you rewind it because you can watch it twice in the time it takes to watch one tree of life. (laughs) That's true. Um... Cool, man. So before we wrap up the whole conversation here, uh, last part of the show is to throw out some double feature recommends to make a little movie night out of any link you see fit, star, thematic material, anything at all. So uh, if you were going to put a movie into a double feature with the Oxbow incident, what are you going to pick? Okay, so I had a couple of different options here, one of which I mentioned earlier with the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. But I, I, I picked that one because it's a little bit introspective. It's sort of a revisionist Western like this one. Mm-hmm. But, but, but. When I finished this film, the Amazon recommendations for like what you would like to watch next or what other users who watch this also watched thing reminded me of a film that I love, one of my favorite Westerns, and that is The Gunfighter with Gregory Peck. All right. What's the link there? Uh, so... 
the link for the gunfighter, it's sort of a... It's sort of a thoughtful Western in the sense that it is about an outlaw who is at the top of his game, is revered across the land, so much so that he's constantly being challenged by everyone. You know, like, hey, buddy, I can outshoot you kind of thing, you know? And it's almost like his plague because he doesn't, he's an older man now. He, you know, he made his, he made his fame when he was a young man and wanted to be known as a badass and, you know, the biggest, baddest outlaw this side of the whatever you know uh but the older you get the less romantic that seems and there's this sort of this idea of um breaking down the western genre and all the things that you consider romantic about the uh, the western genre actually can be quite ugly and can be quite harrowing and sad and lonely and i think this movie reminds me of the gunfighter in a lot of ways uh in that sense that's the breaking down of these things that are often filmed to be romanticized and cool and awesome and really showing the human tragedy and flawedness of humans uh, below it to my shame a western i haven't seen you may have just convinced me to just go blind by the criterion blu-ray um and take it in yeah that is a that's one of those movies the gunfighter is a rare example of like a movie that i loved and then years later criterion like released it and it always makes me feel so cool when that happens because it always makes me, a great feeling. Yeah, because you're like, I knew about this before Criterion released it, and I loved it. So <laughs> it makes you feel real good about yourself and like a film snob. So yeah, I I I love the Gunfighter. I think it's really good. If you open the little booklet they have, and they have like the special thanks at the end, is your name back there? Like, uh, it should be. It you know, I like. I remember years ago I asked them on Facebook on the Criterion Collection. I asked them if there was ever any chance they would release the Monty Hellman westerns, which are the shooting and riding the whirlwind. Yeah, I was like, I was like, is there any chance? And they required they replied some, like some chance, right? Like just one <laughs> word, some. And then ten years later, they did release those movies. So I like to take credit for that. All right, I got. I put the I idea in their brain. Can... They didn't think of it before me. You clearly have some polls, so I have a list I can send you to see if we can get some things happening. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send it to Criterion's way, and we'll, just, we'll see if we can get it all going. Excellent. All right, The Gunfighter, I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, like you, I've got, I got like four options for a double feature recommendation, so I am just going to pull the trigger on one. Um, let's go with the 2010 remake of True Grit by the Coen brothers. Um, oh, my link here is the the stories are kind of linked by this pursuit of frontier justice and the clashing of, you know, do you abide by this system of law and order that is mm-hmm. slower, is seen as kind of an outside force, or do you abide by the rule of the West and the gun? Um, also a very dialogue-driven movie, very character-motivated. Um, and also just if I'm convincing people to get into westerns by watching this movie from 1942 let's pair that with something from 2010 with great cinematography i mean it's a, it's a coen brothers joint so you know it's gonna be great um yep. had a lot i was i was kicking around i mean no one wants to do 12 angry men but it's where your mind instantly goes to uh the wrong man by hitchcock popped into my mind my darling clementine which is another henry fonda western Mm. All those came to mind, but I'm going to stick with the 2010 remake of True Grit. Awesome. I love it. So um, real quick, I would also, just to, to to take up more time and fill this out even more, I would also like to throw Riding the Whirlwind as an official double thing, because I did make that comparison earlier about uh, a mob going, a posse going after the wrong people to lynch. So thematically, Riding the Whirlwind is almost 
uh, perfect for a double feature. There's a lot of options to make this a kick-ass movie night for your double feature. Um, we should maybe stop because on Thursday, we're going to throw this out onto our social media pages uh, for what listeners are going to throw in a double feature with the Oxbow incident. So I'm really excited to see what you guys think. If there's even more that we didn't think of that are linked in some way, it's always really cool to get some ideas for watching. And uh, after that, so that'll be Thursday, Friday, it is on you guys to decide the ultimate fate of the Oxbow incident. Is it going to make Cinemas the way Mike and I want it to, or is it not quite as great as we have pumped it up to be? On Friday, you guys are going to decide, so make sure you're following Cinemas on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to cast your vote in those polls to decide if the movie's going to make the list of essential cinema. So Mike, with that, we'll put a bow on it, man. Thank you so much for bringing this movie to the show. I love talking westerns. It's it's great we finally got to do it. We've we've talked about doing it so long, um, and it hasn't been since I got to talk about Stagecoach on Casual Cinecast that we could make it happen. So thank you for accepting the assignment, man. <laughs> You're welcome. I actually remember talking about Stagecoach, and it took me a while to realize that you and I have never talked about a Western on your show. So, But like I said, it's literally what we talk about every time yep. we talk. Yep. <laughs> That's our thing. <laughs> so now the world can see it. So here it is. I, I hope I can have you back. We can talk. So, you know, we, we can go traditional. We can go into the weird stuff. I'm happy, whatever, as long as it's a Western. Yeah. Next, it's El Topo. Yes. <laughs> I love it. All right. All right, man. One more time, the Casual Cinecast. It's a great show. You guys are going to have an episode on Black Narcissus. In both of our opinions, the greatest Pal and Pressburger movie. Where can people find that when it drops? Oh, you can get us on Spotify, Overcast, iTunes, wherever, or Apple Podcasts now, I think is what it's called technically. But, you know, anywhere you get podcasts, we should be available. If we're not, let me know. I will fix that for you. He will do it. I have put him to the test, and you guys really do take that challenge seriously. So if you can't find the Casual Cinecast wherever you listen to podcasts, let me know or let one of them know. They will fix it for you. (laughs) All right, Mike. Thank you so much for being on the show. Any last words? Uh, no, man. I think I'm I'm good. I'm spent. Are we? I hope you have a good evening. You too, man. Let's pass sentence on this, and we will see everybody next week for a change of pace when we talk about Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory with the Best Picture cast, Kieran B. Hope to see you guys then. Until then, stay out of trouble. Mm-hmm.